Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 203 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the Song of Songs with Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts. Peter and Alistair have finished their typological and topical overview of the book, and now we're jumping into the text itself in chapters 1 and 2. We really hope that you enjoy listening in on this discussion over these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here still sitting at my kitchen table with Alistair Roberts. Several weeks after he got here, we're still sitting at the kitchen table. Uh, Brian Motes is here, helping us stay on track and uh, keeping the quality of the audio going. Uh, We've been uh, going through the uh, Song of Songs. That's been our topic of conversation on the podcast for the last several weeks. We're continuing that with the sixth episode. And this week, we're going to start looking into the text itself in a little more detail. Uh, There's no way we can explore every detail of the song. It's a fairly short poem, but still it has kind of infinite reach if you start exploring and digging into uh, into particular parts of it. So we're not going to try to cover everything. We'll try to highlight certain aspects of uh, each section as we go through it. We'll go, go through about two chapters every week for the next several weeks and um, try to cover uh, try to cover the, the book in general and uh, look at some of the imagery and, and discuss that. And this week we're talking about the first two chapters, uh, Song of Songs 1 and 2. And uh, the First chapter and a quarter to first chapter and a half or so is a dialogue between the uh, the man and the woman, beginning with the woman's desire for the kisses of the man's mouth, for the the bride, for the bridegroom. And as you go through, you can't always tell this in English. You have it marked in most Bibles that one or the other is speaking. You can't always tell that in English, but in Hebrew, uh, you have verb markers. Then you have decl- uh, conjugating verbs that have markers built into the verb that show whether it's masculine or feminine. And so uh, you can tell in the Hebrew who's speaking to whom. Uh, and you have a you have a, a seven section dialogue going on, beginning with the bride, ending with the bride at the beginning of chapter two, with uh, the adjuration in, chap- in verse seven. Uh, and so one one two through two seven basically makes up the original makes up the the first section and you have this back and forth. Some Bibles will will intervene or put in a chorus and there does seem to be several places where there's a plural group one four we rejoice in you be, uh, we will rejoice in you be glad we will extol your love more than wine rightly do they love you that looks like it's coming from a, a collection maybe the daughters of Jerusalem or daughters of Zion that are mentioned at the end of this section and mentioned several times throughout. But basically, you have a seven-section opening in the first uh, chapter in seven verses, and then you have what seems to be a, a, a connected scene in verses 8 through 14 of chapter 2, the bridegroom, the lover, bounding over the, over the mountains to get to his beloved, and then it ends with this uh, somewhat cryptic reference to foxes, the little foxes who are ruining the vineyards, catch the little foxes for us. And verse sixteen, we'll get we'll get back to this, but uh, one of the uh, one of several times we have this statement of mutual possession: "My beloved is mine, and I am his," which is just a kind of a concise summary of the kind of love that the song is depicting throughout. One other general comment before we go into details, but um, 
Uh, Paul Griffith's uh, Brazos commentary on the Song of Songs is, is well worth reading. Griffith uh, says at the beginning he doesn't know Hebrew, so he didn't try to comment on the Hebrew text. Instead, he comments on the Vulgate. <laughs> it's striking how often the Vulgate gets the Hebrew exactly right and how often Griffith, by commenting on the Latin, is actually highlighting things that are, uh, that are already there in the Hebrew. So uh, it's, uh, and Griffith's just a, a, uh, a wonderful writer and a very insightful theologian. But one of the points that he makes at the beginning uh, of his commentary is that the Song of Songs is a poem of desire and recollection. It's not a poem that is describing the moment of lovemaking. And this may go, Alistair, to the comments you made uh, a couple of episodes ago about the difference between the way the song is depicting lovemaking and, and eroticism and the way pornography does. This whole poem is, is describing, maybe not the whole poem, but virtually the whole poem is describing anticipation of renewed contact with the, lover, with the other against the background of recollection of previous contact. And what Griffith suggests is that puts this uh, desire, this love, this eros into a temporal context it, it, where uh, the lovers are distended, to use the Augustinian image, between desire and memory. And that gives the lovemaking their, and their, their very passionate desires a human element because it's, their lovemaking is part of a narrative, it's part of a story, it's part of a relationship that they've had together. Paul Kahn, in his work on putting liberalism in its place, discusses the significance of the difference between pornography and the vision that you have, for instance, especially in the story of Abraham, the contrast between Abraham and Sot and Sodom, and the way that pornography has no story. There's no sense of it being situated within the generative movement of human life, whereas desire, as you describe it here, I think, does include the whole fabric of human life and creation is caught up in desire. Yeah. A pornography tries to create these stories around the, uh, around the, around the sexual encounter, but uh, it doesn't that's, that's just dressing for the titillating act itself. Uh, but that's exactly the kind of point that uh, Griffith is making. He says this, The intensity and complexity of human romantic and sexual need cannot find its fulfillment in the circumcession of two, of two human bodies and minds. If that circumcession were limited to its performance, it would not be human lovemaking. In order to be that, in order to be human lovemaking, it needs to be placed in the order of time as an object of memory and anticipation and in the order of narrative is an event about which the right story can be told. So, um, yeah, putting, putting the love of the lovers into a storyline and into this temporal context of um, the, um, um, the bride is remembering the kiss of the lover and longing for it again. And that uh, puts it in this time frame, which, again, highlights the uh, um, Griffith is implying without necessarily saying that you extract lovemaking out of that context and you extract it out of the, the human dimensions of human life. Uh, you turn it bestial. So uh, pornographic uh, sexuality, by, by removing sexuality from that, uh, that, temporal, from that temporal frame, from that uh, memory and anticipation, is actually turning it into something other than human lovemaking. You mentioned seven speeches in this initial section. I've heard the number seven before. Is there really? any significance to that? Uh, I think this is the only place in the Bible where there's a structure of seven. <laughs> I, don't believe, I don't remember if I've ever tried to match these up with the days of creation. I'm not sure they would. 
But yeah, the seven the sevenfold sequence is definitely Maybe with blackness and then the sun. Yeah, yeah. You definitely you definitely have a, a a creation sequence. There are other places in the song where you have that kind of imagery, where where love is a uh, a refreshment and a kind of almost a kind of resurrection. Um, you have it a couple of times in this in this section, for example, um, in two, four, and five. He brought me to his what house of wine. Kids, it's not banquet hall. It's house of wine. He brought me to his house of wine. His banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples because I'm lovesick. So the love is a kind of, it has a healing potential. It, it restores the bride. And then uh, the poem in uh, 2, 10 through 14, uh, this part of that is about the coming of spring. Again, I think you have a list of seven features of springtime that are mentioned. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come. Winter is gone. Rain is over and gone. Flowers have appeared in the land. The time is ripe for pruning the vines. The voice of the turtle dove has been heard in the land. The fig tree is ripe in its figs, and the vines of the blossom have given uh, forth their fragrance. I have tried to link that up with the seven days of creation, and I think it works pretty well. But you have a the springtime is a time of resurrection. So, I, and I think that that fits in with the theme that we talked about in an earlier episode. With the, you have the climax at the end of the song uh, of uh, the love that's stronger than death, that's as severe, it's jealousy, it's severe shale, it's the flame of Yah. So the love is a resurrecting power. Um, obviously that's divine love that's being talked about in that section, but I think you also have the sense that, um, and I think it's, this is, this is a, a theological statement that's true to human experience, that there's a kind of new life that you receive when you're, when you're beloved and when you love. So I think that yeah, the sevenfold opening, I think, is pointing to that new creation theme that's running through a lot of the poem. Well, I, I mentioned um, osculation, osculation uh, last, last time, I think, uh, the opening uh, desire for the, the bride has for the kisses of his mouth. And I mentioned the, that in connection with the kind of image of mutual, mutual consumption, mouth to mouth. Uh, and I think it, it's, it's interesting to try to develop that in kind of a in, in terms of biblical imagery, because that, that's the, this kind of relates to the new creation point that you highlighted. Adam comes to life uh, mouth to mouth or mouth to nose. The Lord breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Uh, Adam is kissed into, into becoming a living, living soul. Um, and the imagery that it doesn't necessarily use the imagery directly of kissing, but it does use an imagery of face to face and mouth to mouth. Uh, when for example, Moses' communion with God is described. Breath coming from God to uh, human beings is um, is a, a kind of divine kiss. So there's an exchange of breath and an exchange of life. There's a kind of mutual consumption, and the kissing. The kiss also has a connotations of uh, well, it's it's a multi-century experience. I mean, you kiss somebody on the mouth, you taste, you smell, um, pleasantly or not. Uh, you feel uh, there's there's a, a multitude of senses that are that are invoked in that. It's the whole person that's engaged uh, in this very intimate moment of a kiss. Uh, and I think that that the the power of a kiss, the actual power of that experience, I think, is related to all these biblical all these biblical images that are behind it. It really is a kind of enlivening experience to have that kind of intimacy with someone. Uh, you know, think about this in having taught undergraduates for 15 years. Undergraduates uh, 
are uh, discovering their adult adulthood and have all kinds of all kinds of sexual temptations. And I think one of the things that um, this line of line of thinking suggests is a extreme caution about the kind of intimacy that a kiss involves. I don't think we realize when that's that it, it becomes so it's become so uh, commonplace for I didn't I didn't have sex with him. I just kissed him. We just made out. I didn't have sex with him. That's an extremely intimate kind of contact. Other than actual intercourse, it's hard to imagine a more intimate kind of contact other than kissing. I mean, you're actually (laughs) breathing into one another. You're opening your body to one another in a way that uh, resembles, even though it's not sexual intercourse, it resembles sexual intercourse. So there's all this biblical imagery, and that just kind of heightens the, the significance of it, I think. Practically, um, it's a it's a caution to be careful who you kiss. <laughs> I guess that significance of the kiss, as you suggest, is associated with breathing. It's also associated with ingestion. Mm-hmm. Um, this right. process of taking the other um, and taking them in some sense, um, you're connecting with them yeah. in the same way as you connect with your food and also with the air that you breathe. Right. Right. And I think that no, we mentioned this in the last episode, but that does pick that does uh, feed into what feeds into the statement of mutual possession that we have at the end of the passage we're looking at. I am my beloved; uh, my beloved is mine. I am his, and that also kind of feeds into a Eucharistic theology. You have you have Eucharistic prayers, um, in the Book of Common Prayer, I think, and uh, Bootser's Eucharistic prayers, prayers of thanksgiving at the end of the Eucharist. Use this kind of imagery. Use this kind of language that uh, Christ may dwell in us and we in him. So there's a, an act of eating by which Christ comes to live in us. And that same act of eating is a, is a union with Christ, so we become to dwell in him. So yeah, there's a, there's a kind of mutual consumption that from, the so- from this reference to in the song that uh, feeds into that uh, Eucharistic imagery. And even in addition to the eating and the theme of breathing, we have the theme of communication. Talks about... Right. God speaking to Abraham mouth to mouth. Um, more generally, I think it's the most intimate form of communication. The communication of one's lips, where you're communi- speaking forth yourself, but there's a speaking forth that is so intimate that you're not even whispering to each other, you're communicating direct, lip to lip. Thinking about that uh, led us forward to the end of chapter 2, and I wanted to uh, highlight the that phrase again, see if I can find my notes on the, the Hebrew, because it's an, uh, I am my beloved, my beloved, my, my beloved is mine and I am his. That refrain or something like it is used a number of times in the song, gets reversed along the way to, uh, it's here it's the bride speaking, my beloved Dodi is mine and I am his, and it gets uh, turned the other direction, so the Dodi is expressing the the mutual possession. But it's a beautiful little phrase in the Hebrew, if I can find my notes. My beloved is Dodi. We talked about that uh, a couple episodes ago. Dodi, my my beloved, which is used uh, 26 times in the song. The 26 is the numerical value of the name Yahweh. And the use of that, my beloved, throughout the poem is pointing to the lover as Yahweh. But it's Dodi li va'ani lo. It's got a neat little lilt to it. Dodi li uh, my beloved is to me, va'ani lo, and I am to him. I, w- I mentioned uh, in the previous episode that uh, fragrance is an important part of the uh, part of the poem, and that that's related to the comment that I cited from uh, Griffith. 
I mean, just as a phenomenological reality, fragrance is associated, deeply associated with memory. We've got some boxwoods just outside our house here. And I can't smell boxwoods without immediately being maybe eight years old and being in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, exploring the, colo the colonial little village in Williamsburg. That's the first time I remember ever smelling boxwoods. It doesn't take any effort of thought. As soon as I smell it, I feel like I'm back in that setting. You know, you have uh, other aromas um, that, uh, that bring back, uh, bring memories pouring back. Uh, the aroma of a beloved person's perfume or cologne that uh, brings memory back of the person. But that's running through, uh, that imagery is running through the whole poem. It's introduced here at the beginning. It's the bride speaking again. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. It's part of the imagery of the bride as a flower, a rose of Sharon, a lily among the thorns. She's um, giving off this aroma and fragrance. And that too, we can we could think about in terms of a kind of developed biblical theology of aroma. Lots of dimensions to that. Within the temple system, there are fragrances from the sacrifices. That's the goal of sacrifices, to provide a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. The priest serves, uh, having been anointed with fragrant oil, so he's perfumed. I think of, you know, if you ever walked by somebody who were, puts essential oils on, probably like walking by Aaron, just exuding this aroma of uh, spices. And, and here, I think it is linked up with memory. In, in the sacrificial system, the, the aroma leads to the Lord's acceptance and covering of the person who's made the offering. Uh, here, it's the fragrance of the bridegroom that's awakening the memory and the anticipation of the bride. Uh, elsewhere in the song, it's the fragrance of the bride that's uh, awakening the desire of the bridegroom. Both within the beginning of um, chapter 1 and also later on in chapter 2, we see the image of the vineyard and the shepherd coming to the forefront. forefront. Now, those are very familiar sources of imagery within the Old Testament, the vineyard being connected with Israel, for instance, in the Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah, but then also the imagery of the shepherd, the shepherdess and the shepherd, Israel led by Moses, one carrying a rod out of Egypt, the leader of the people as the shepherd, David, um, the challenge to the wicked shepherds that we find in the prophets. How do we use that imagery in the context of the song? What role do you think it's playing here? Well, first of all, just to, just to add, a, add a gloss to what you were saying about the use of vineyard imagery elsewhere. Jesus uses the vineyard uh, in various parables, most dramatically in the, in the parable of the vineyard. <laughs> uh, funnily enough, that's where he talks about a vineyard. And it's the, it's the caretakers of the vineyard that are uh, condemned for not uh, giving due the, the due tribute to the owner of the vineyard. And the vineyard is taken from them and given to another. So then I think the uh, thing about that parable in the light of the image of the song, in the light of the imagery of Isaiah 5, adds this erotic dimension to that poem, that these are caretakers of the, the vineyard who is the bride of the Lord. You have that, that, uh, that combination of images that's, I think, built into that parable. The general picture, I would say, is the shepherd is a, an image of kingship. The shepherd is the caretaker of the Lord's vineyard, who is his people. And the Lord has planted the, Psalm 80, picking up on the, also on the imagery of Isaiah 5, that you have the vineyard transplanted from Egypt, planted in the land, is producing this, these grapes and this wine that's supposed to be for the 
delight and the joy of God and man. Israel is not producing good grapes. They're producing sour grapes. It's not producing wine that brings the Lord pleasure. The king's role is to cultivate the vineyard. Uh, the king's role is to make sure that the vineyard Israel is producing good fruit uh, and uh, producing wine that brings delight to God and man. So uh, Solomon, is, uh, as the writer of the poem, Solomon as a character in the poem, is that uh, shepherd figure, uh, ultimately the shepherd figure who is, a, is there to care for the care for the vineyard. Elsewhere in scripture, we have um, sets forms of imagery that would suggest some connection. For instance, between the threshing floor and the temple, and then the bringing together of husband and wife, or we have it in the story of Ruth and Boaz. That union is one that is playing with a certain subset of agricultural imagery. Mm -hmm. And here we have a different one that's focusing very much upon wine. Mm -hmm. um, do you think we should observe contrasts between those? Or do you think they're primarily complementary, distinct forms? They are probably a trail off in different directions. I can see overlaps. The uh, threshing floor as a place of Israel's gathering. The temple as a threshing floor is a place of sifting, but it's also a place of bread production. So the Israel's being sifted and being prepared to become bread for the world. I think uh, Israel, uh, the temple is a house of wine, as we've been, as I've been pointing out. That also has has certain connotations of sifting and correction and judgment. Insofar as the Lord's the Lord's uh, cup is a cup of it's a it's a jealousy test among other things. So Israel in drinking the Lord's wine is being tested for her loyalty. So I think there's there's some overlap, but I think. Uh, I can't, do, I can't do it on the fly, but I suspect that they, they kind of trail off in different directions. Is there a possibility there's a contrast between the bread production as something that's connected with the beginning of the day mm. um, and then wine as that which is the yeah. um, rest at the end? Yeah, um, that would be one direction to, to think through it. I, I, um, it's not clear to me how to how to fill yeah. in those gaps right now. Bread maybe with raising up um, seed mm. and the um, the wine imagery is associated with the promised kingdom, with the fulfillment it's and the rest awesome. at the end. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, it'd be I mean, um, we're dancing around the themes of uh, Jim Jordan's uh, "From Bread to Wine," uh, who. That's the sequence that he talks about. Bread as the beginning food, alpha food. Wine as eschatological omega food. Uh, we've, also, we've also, I also refer read, uh, listeners, your listeners out there, uh, to uh, uh, Gisela Kregelinger's book on the spirituality of wine and the interview that we had with her a couple of years ago where we discussed this with her and she talked about the, the, the very uh, pervasive uh, use of wine terminology and imagery throughout the Bible. It's uh, once once she pointed it out, it's it, you see how it's really, it really is all over the place in the Bible. I, uh, I did want to highlight one other dimension to the uh, to the uh, vineyard in uh, one five and six. I am black but lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Verse six. She explains her swarthiness, her blackness. Do not stare at me because I'm swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretake of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Um, I think that sets us up for one of the reversals that we have in the course of the song. 
here she's being abused by her brothers, apparently, uh, and she's uh, being forced to work in the vineyard at the end of the, and she's not able to take her own vineyard. At the end of the poem, uh, she has her own vineyard at her disposal, that's 812, and uh, there are references to the brothers uh, that uh, show that they're, she, she's been kind of elevated above them, and there's this reversal in their relationship and a reversal in relationship to her own vineyard. But the, so the, there the vineyard is a place of forced labor. And it's also associated, that place of forced labor is also associated with her, with her color. I'm black but lovely, uh, and she's swarthy or black because of the sun has burned me. And uh, I, I like, uh, Robert Jensen has a, has a neat little commentary on the Song of Songs uh, in the interpretation series. It's uh, very short and compact and uh, full of, full of really interesting observations on the text and then kind of typically Jensenist, Jensen, Jensonian flights of fancy on the theological implications. But he suggests that the, uh, this is a kind of Exodus uh, picture, that the, uh, this is a picture of Israel enslaved, being forced to work in another's vineyard. And that, that, leaves, that leaves a kind of a, a, dis, a distinguishing mark on Israel that might be taken as a sign of you know, a lack of glory, a lack of beauty. But in fact, that, that becomes a marker of the Lord's, uh, for the, to the Lord that becomes a marker of Israel's, uh, of Israel's beauty. She's turned dark because of her punishment, but then she boasts that the punishment has turned her into someone who's black and lovely that the Lord delights in. But that was a, that may be making too much of the, of the couple of verses, but I thought that was a neat way of uh, connecting the, the blackness to the forced labor in the vineyard and linking it up with Israel's history. The reference to the blackness of the woman also suggests her strangeness, her otherness. otherness. She's not like the other daughters of Jerusalem. She contrasts with them. And throughout the song, we have imagery that is drawn from places outside of Israel, from Lebanon, from the mare of the chariots of Pharaoh, and the tents of Kedar. Mm -hmm. These are strange, exotic realms. They mm -hmm. aren't Israel itself. Right. Um, what is it about this particular woman that, why is she depicted as not the regular woman of the yeah. daughters of Zion? But, uh, um, just a note on the, on the use of exotic, unexpected place names. I think that's, that's, part, of a, that's part of a stylistic uh, device that's used throughout the poem. I mentioned this at the beginning of our series that um, the Song of Songs, I think, has more unique words than any other book of the Old Testament. You know, in eight chapters, it has like a, over a hundred hapax legomenon, uh, words that are used nowhere else in the Old Testament. And many of these are, uh, uh, seem to be loan words from other, from other cultures, place names. Uh, Kedar is mentioned elsewhere, but uh, they're place names that are just uh, that are unique to the song, so th there's a there's a an effort to create a certain atmosphere of exotic as exoticism that I think is the places are part of. It also it also occurs to me that Solomon is I mean one of the traditional historical settings is that Solomon is writing a love poem for the daughter of Pharaoh, and that you have not just a another maybe another overlay of the uh, of the allegory here is not just Yahweh and Israel the king and his people. But you have a, a Gentile inclusion kind of picture that uh, uh, the the uh, this uh, bride who is black but lovely becomes Shulamite, the, the 
the feminine version of Solomon. She becomes the queen, uh, Solomon's hand, a right hand at the end of the poem, and she is uh, incorporated into Israel. We think about the land imagery that we find later on. Would part of the strangeness perhaps be the land of Israel itself mm. before Israel enters? Mm. Yeah, it's possible. It, it, it could be reaching back to an to a uh, time when Israel, when the land was new to Israel. Uh, I wanted to, um, in the time we have left, I wanted to pick up on a few particular images. One of you mentioned in one nine. Again, guys, here's a sweet nothing you can pass on to your beloved. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh, like a female horse. Which, uh, I mean, horses are beautiful. Horses are awesome. Uh, horses are, uh, that's, that's, not a, that's not an uncomplimentary thing to say. But I think that the, the, the particular twist, my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh, this is, this is the mare that's prancing through the stables and getting all the male, all the stallions, in, the chariot stallions aroused as she prances by. I think that's the picture that we have. Uh, my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Not just a mare, but a mare who's uh, who's uh, there among many other uh, many other horses, you know. And she stands out, stands out in her beauty, but also uh, the mare in the presence of a uh, collection of stallions. Seem maybe the picture here. So, if that's the case, then the compliment is has something to do with her desirability. Like you know, all the guys envy me because you're with me. She, her beauty is noticed by others. It's not just the, it's not just the lovers, not just the bridegrooms. Uh, she's not just beautiful in his own, in his eyes. Not just beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but this beauty is evident to others, which which fits with other things in the song. With the to mix metaphors, the foxes like the mares. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. That was the other, another one I wanted to think about a little bit in a second. But uh, I mean, this commendation by a a public is brought up later in the song in the 6, 8, and 9, and following, where queens and concubines and maidens without number commend her. And that's, again, I think part of the reversal. She's despised at the beginning. She's black, swarthy, but then uh, toward the end of the poem, she's, uh, she's being commended by these queens and concubines. So there's, there's this kind of public recognition of her beauty that's part of the desirability that the woman has for the bridegroom and vice versa. I mean, the, uh, when, uh, when she describes her, uh, when she's out on the street, she describes her, um, she describes Dodie, her beloved to the women, they find her description attractive. So there's again, this kind of public recognition of the beauty of, uh, of, of each. Yeah. The foxes I wanted to, um, I don't remember where I got this. Maybe Cheryl Exum, um, in her commentary on the Song of Songs, uh, gives what I found the, the most convincing um, explanation of the, of 2.15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards where our vineyards are in blossom. And she says that there's associations in the ancient world between foxes and uh, sexual, kind of sexual connotations. And the vineyard is associated with the woman, the vineyard is associated with the bride, Little foxes that are plundering the vineyard are um, the uh, the scurrying young men who just want to get the fruit that they can and just scurry on uh, to the next to the next vine and get more grapes. And uh, there's a 
I think Cheryl Axum suggests that then what the uh, bride is exhorting, whoever's speaking here, I think it's the bride. This is attributed to the chorus in my NASB, but somebody exhorting uh, the, uh, the women or the bride to catch a fox, not just to let the, the foxes are scurrying around, you know, but they're, they shouldn't be allowed to just grab what fruit they can and move on. That there's a, uh, they should be attached to one vine. They should become and they need to be caught and be uh, stabilized. I, th- I think of um, George Gilder's book, Men in Marriage. I don't know if you've read that in your research, but uh, he, he, partly on the basis of certain uh, some kind of evolutionary uh, arguments, suggests that you know, men have this tendency to uh, uh, you know, enter into multiple, multiple sexual partnerships. And uh, it's, it's women's chastity that kind of ties a guy down and dem- doesn't domesticate him in the sense of removing his masculinity, but ties him down to devoting himself to a wife and to the future. So he's, that's a fox that's been caught. And that's certainly a theme that we find within um, intertestamental literature. It's something that we also find in something like Proverbs, mm-hmm. that vision of tying yourself, committing yourself to a particular woman. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that is Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly, that commitment occurs mm-hmm. and it shapes that man's destiny. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.